Hello, welcome to Louder Than Words, the pod that is about how ideas improve lives. I'm Jules Pretty from the University of Essex. It's a great pleasure to welcome two colleagues from the School of Life Sciences at the University of Essex, Terry McGinnity and Corinne Whitby. And in this episode, we're talking about the tiny things in ecosystems, the microbial worlds of bacteria and fungi in water, air and soil. So welcome to you both, Terry and Corinne. Thanks very much for coming on. Um, so you both work in this extraordinarily diverse and important, yet kind of largely invisible, as it were, to our normalised world. Could you ta- start with a bit on a bit of 101 on microbes, micro- microbial literacy, as it were, how to understand them and how important they are in, the, in a kind of changing world? Terry, do you want to have a go? Yeah. Um, well, microbes, first of all, they, they are invisible um, to the naked eye, but we can look at them under the microscope. There are about, ooh, 100 of them uh, across the width of a human hair. They're massively abundant uh, and form a huge amount of, of the mass, the weight of, of the world. In terms of the oceans, something like 65% of the ocean mass is microbial, which is... Not water. Not uh, Ignoring water. Yeah. Uh, sorry, of yeah. living mass. Yeah, Thank living you mass, for that yeah. clarification. <laughs> uh, living mass. So that equates to about um, a thousand times the mass of all the whales. And they... It's what they do that's important. They produce you know, about a third of the oxygen that we breathe. They degrade all sorts of pollutants. Um, we basically couldn't live without them. Yeah. Yes. And so if we went back in time, Corin, right back to the beginnings of life on planet Earth, it was microbes that changed the nature of the planet and the atmosphere, as, mm. as you were just saying, yeah. Terry. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It, it was the um, oxygen-producing microbes, the cyanobacteria that um, gave us our atmosphere that we, that we know today. They're also incredibly important in things like greenhouse gas production. Um, so you, you, you've got You've got the, on the one hand the, the the good bacteria, if you like, that that produce the oxygen, but then you've also got the bad bacteria that produce gases like methane and nitrous oxide, which obviously is con- contributing to climate change and global warming. So, um, and in your work, you're trying to understand the 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 diversity, the interactions between microbes and how they influence the world, but also how kind of if the industrial nature of the world now has changed some of those things and requiring different sorts of discovery and intervention. But tell us a bit about a kind of discoveries that might relate to, say, oil, for example. So the first thing to say is that oil is a, is a natural compound. Uh, it's been around for many, many millions of years. And I say it, but what I mean is, is they. It consists of thousands of different types of, of molecules, mainly hydrocarbons. And microbes have had the time to evolve to degrade those. Uh, they were also partly responsible in, for their production millions of years ago, uh, along with burial and other factors. But it's uh, the degradation that, that we're primarily interested in for when things go particularly badly wrong. Uh, I think we're all aware of oil spills. We've all seen it on the news and, and how devastating it can be for the environment. And it's primarily the microbes that... that um, chop up the hydrocarbons and convert them to harmless compounds. Great. So when we see the, the worst of the, of the oil spills, the, the, the big ones of the past, after a period of time, that oil is naturally broken down. But 
part of the discoveries around the way that microbes work is that we could intervene earlier to do that or we could intervene in specific places where there has been pollution of a certain level that's a persistent problem is that is that where where the discoveries take us a little yeah, bit a- absolutely it's, it's understanding which microbes are present naturally how we can stimulate those populations make make them grow so that they can break down the hydrocarbons quicker or it, indeed we could add microbes to a particular location we also want to try and understand the mechanisms and processes of how they break that down and whether we can speed speed up those processes and that's one aspect that I'm interested in, in, in particular looking at oil sands in uh, Canada and um, the wastewaters that are produced from that process of, of getting that oil. We can use microbes to reduce that waste, which would naturally be around for maybe decades. So by using microbes, we can speed up that process considerably. So these are pretty awful kind of environments, aren't they, after the tar sands have been stripped of their oil and the hydrocarbons that for, for human use. Tell us a little bit about kind of then what 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 are we seeing in those environments and those those kind of pollutant ponds and then practically how do we go about actually acting to reduce their impact? So during the extraction process, um, you have these big diggers that, that scrape the surface of the, the land so it, it can destroy a lot of um, the trees and the, and the natural wildlife that's there. They extract bitumen, which is like a real tar, thick-like oil substance. And, um, and by doing that, they produce all this wastewater. And this wastewater is contaminated with toxic compounds that are called naphthenic acids. They're just a type of hydrocarbon and um, they're very difficult to remove. And so um, what the authorities have to do is store this wastewater in these vast ponds. And they're so big, you can see these from space. There's satellite images showing this. And if you were to stand on one side of this pond, you wouldn't be able to see the other side. It's, it's so vast. As big as a sea, almost. It's, uh, yeah, bigger yeah. bigger in some cases. And it's, it's huge. And so what we're looking at is, is using microbes that naturally occur in these ponds. First of all, identifying what they are and then seeing if we can manipulate the populations of microbes to try and clean that waste up. And the research that we've done has identified some of these microbes and we've actually shown that we can reduce the time it takes to um, remove the waste down to a matter of days in some cases. So it's it's pretty, pretty dramatic. And it's worth saying, Corinne, isn't it, that some of the compounds in these um, tar sands that are even more difficult to degrade than hydrocarbons that you get in a normal normal oil spill. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So why is that? What what? Just they're more complex because of the tar sands. Yeah, uh, they're, yep. they're, it's like a soup of compounds, and it's very difficult to identify what these compounds are. You need specialised uh, equipment, uh, so analytical chemistry techniques to identify what these are, and they're different from pond to pond. So you can't always use the information you get from one pond to relate to. Um, and another pond. And they've been modified, some of them, over time with the introduction of an oxygen atom, for example. That's right, yeah. It makes them more difficult to degrade. Right, so um, that's evolution at work, presumably, a little bit. Um, Well, uh, is there a kind of little bit of a dilemma here in in as much as um, if if we weren't doing the 
tar sand extraction to get the last bit of fossil fuels out of the ground, as it were, to feed an industrial economy, then we wouldn't need to be doing the cleanup. And if we're very good at cleaning up, if we get better, I'm using the we in the general term here, um, uh, then it would allow more extraction in the future. Is there is there a dilemma there when it comes to, I mean, this is the general mm-hmm. problem with pollutant cleanup anyway, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Is, is it could be argued, well, that allows us to get on with carrying on doing polluting things because we get better at cleaning them up? Or is it more a question of saying, well, this tells us about how these systems work, which also bring applications into other and other contexts as well? Uh, I mean, the, the current understanding is there's about 50 years worth of um, fossil fuels, oil left that we know about. Obviously, there's others resources that we would need to explore. So it, it, it is a conundrum, really. Do, do you look for more fossil fuels and obviously the, the polluting effects of that, or do you invest in um, green energy? So if we if we just kind of flew up a bit above these sorts of processes, uh, the 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 kind of problematic side effects of of kind of modern society in the in the broader sense, modern economies, um, we're going to need to clean up problems that come from side effects, regardless of the context. This is this is not allowing, in a sense, I'm being a bit unfair here, but this is not allowing uh, fossil fuels to carry on being used. This is just to say, well, we're learning more about these systems. Mm, we're learning new things, which, and we can then apply that knowledge elsewhere. Is that fair? That, that's yeah, fair to absolutely. say. And I, I think it's also important to, to repeat the point that, that hydrocarbons are natural. Um, so, for example... We, we come back to cyanobacteria they mentioned earlier. They um, So these are blue-green algae? Sometimes blue-green. called blue-green algae, yeah. yep, yep. And uh, they produce oxygen, very important and abundant in the ocean. Um, and they also produce a lot of hydrocarbons, perhaps more than the whole of Saudi Arabia per annum. But we don't see them. We don't see them because there's microbes living alongside them. And when they die and release those hydrocarbons, those microbes, the same ones that clean up the pollution on our beaches, um, degrade them yeah so take us a bit into your your world of the deep seas and deep oceans um terry so um uh the work on the super saline saltwater deeps as a kind of a micro well they're not a micro environment but they're sub in, a sub environment a sub ecosystem of seas that people might not know about and understand Yep. Because un- interesting things are happening there in these extreme environments, aren't they? Indeed. Um, so we've, we've been studying the deep sea anoxic hypersaline lakes, as we call them. Um, so, the, so put that into... Yeah, so, so that's <laughs> in the deep sea, so for very example, salty, not much oxygen. Not much oxygen, almost zero oxygen. Uh, and basically the, the salty seas, extremely salty seas within the sea, sitting on, on the sea floor... And, you know, some of them are massive. They're the size of Lake Windermere. They occur in the Mediterranean, the Gulf of Mexico, the Red Sea. And uh, a consequence of, um, well, let's step back about six million years when the Mediterranean dried up um, and it became um, a salt deposit. And that salt deposit got buried and... uh, Later, uh, when the the med, uh, when the Atlantic flowed back into the med, um, some of that salt started to get dissolved, and that in, in little depressions in in the Mediterranean, for example, um, formed these brine lakes. And uh, as I said, these these are large, and back uh, 
several years now, we, we, we went on uh, a number of cruises to investigate the microbiology of those environments. And I was at a conference once and an eminent professor told me that they were dead. There's no life in them. and I, I They must be dead because they're so Because they're so salty. Uh, inimical to life, effectively, or seemingly so. But they're not dead. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about them. Um, that They're very much alive. Um, that there's all sorts of processes uh, going on in those lakes that you'd expect to see in other environments. Methane production, for example. Um, and what's most exciting is the interface, where you have seawater, meeting these brines. This is a, a zone of real activity, all sorts of um, um, microbial, uh, new microbes, new microbes that, that provide um, uh, useful uh, enzymes uh, for, for industrial processes, uh, green chemistry, if you like, uh, but also carry out the, the degradation of that methane that's produced lower on, uh, lower down, sorry. Mm. So these are... Um I mean, we didn't know about these places until fairly recently. Is that, I mean, obviously, with respect to the eminent person you mentioned who says, under my existing paradigm, they must be dead, but you go along and, and sample them and find there's lots of life there. Yes. And, but it's also extremely unusual because of the extreme environment. It, it, is, it is unusual. Not, not only is it salty, anoxic, uh, without oxygen, uh, but it's also under high pressure. Uh, dark environment and we were also interested because they seem to be isolated environments and we wondered about how the microbes got there um, that you know the ones that are adapted specifically to very high salt would they survive in seawater could they travel uh, through seawater or did they derive from the underlying rock salt uh, that formed these dense brines okay that's very interesting so so they were they're a bit like their islands I mean, they've got similarities to the biogeography of, of islands because they're separated ecosystems. And are there several within the, the Mediterranean? There, there are sev several. Um, uh, we're now finding um, many, many more. Mm. Um, one thing that is, is curious is that their chemistry uh, can differ from place to place. So to investigate the, the island effect... Uh, for example, um, we have to find those with similar chemistry, but the ones with different chemistry are also very di uh, interesting because we want to look at the limits of life. Yeah, very interesting. Well, one of the things you've shown, though, Terry, is is that how the, the microbes in these environments can be preserved and entombed, and then you can um, re you know grow them again from from salt crystals, which I thought was really really yeah, cool. Yeah, so so. Um, I'd, be, I'd been interested in, in the question of microbial longevity, whether they can survive over geological time since my, my PhD uh, many moons ago. And there's um, growing recognition that, that this is the case, that microbes can survive, and, and inside salt crystals is one of those places. And, and that's why I sort of hinted that perhaps the underlying rock salt in the Mediterranean was the source of some of those microbes that we're seeing uh, within these deep sea brines. So give us a, an idea of the length of time that we're talking about, because this, this kind of raises interesting questions about what life is. I mean, if you can have something that is locked up inside a crystal for more than a few years, and then it can come back to life again. What, what sorts of periods are we talking about, do you think? Well, I'll start with the marine salt that we all eat. Um, that's packed full of living um, 
I'll give you the name, Halo Arcare. They're the main microbes responsible. Um, they're a different branch, a div different evolutionary branch from, from bacteria. Uh, so we're eating these Halo Arcare all the time. Um, so a few years is no problem. Yeah. Uh, then you go back decades. Um, we recently isolated some from from um, uh, Dead Sea rock salt that had formed a few uh, tens of years ago, and then you go back thousands and, and, and even millions of years. And and there have been reports of several tens or hundreds of millions of years. And then the recovery of these microbes becomes less and less. The repeatability of those experiments becomes uh, uh, less. But it doesn't mean that it's not happening. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so it's it's a kind of bit of a controversial area once you get beyond several tens of millions of years. But certainly thousands, hundreds of thousands of millions of years, there's very good evidence uh, with repeatable recoveries of these microbes. And these are, I mean, these are living things. I mean, obviously, self-evidently. I mean, they but they're going into a period where they are showing no signs of of living until they've revived in some sort of way. That, that's exactly the case, uh, and we're doing um, studies now trying to understand how they can do this. Um, you've got the protection from being in salt. I mean, one, let me give you the, the, the big problem is the um, radiation, radiation that directly and indirectly uh, leads to the, the, the breaking of, of, of DNA and proteins, and microbes need to prevent this. Uh, so they have salt as a shield. They live in their little nuclear bunkers, if you like. So that helps uh, reduce some of the radiation. But they have within their cells a whole suite of, of mechanisms to, to uh, prevent this damage, uh, including, uh, for example, that they replace the iron in the cells with manganese because iron is problematic uh, uh, under those conditions, whereas mag manganese uh, is, is a much... Um, better protectant uh, against radiation. But they, they, they do a whole host of other things. They can repair their DNA rapidly. They can protect their proteins. And the big question is, what are they feeding off? Are they dormant, or completely dormant, or are they just ticking over slowly? And all the evidence suggests it's the latter. They're feeding They're ticking, up, they're ticking over. They're ticking over. Right. They have a packed lunch with them uh, in those salt crystals. Very good, very interesting. Well, take us into soils then, Corinne. So um, we've we've heard how microbes in extreme environments do really interesting things when it comes to you know what life is and longevity and protection and feeding themselves over a period of time. Take us into the the world of soils. We've we've learnt a huge amount in recent years, haven't we, about microbial diversity and how it influences the plants above mm -hmm. ground and the animals below ground. Mm -hmm. Take us into that a little bit. Some of that's to do with pollutants, but some of it's mm -hmm. to do with successful agriculture, for mm -hmm. example. And, and nutrients as well, yeah, absolutely. So that there's, a, there's a, a whole group of microbes that are, in, uh, that are important in nutrient cycling, so carbon, nitrogen. This is extremely important in agricultural systems. Um, you have microbes, um, so these are bacteria and fungi as well, that associate um, with the plant roots and help um, increase uh, crop yields. And then uh, we're also quite interested as well in, in, in the bioaerosols. So there's, there's microbes that, that are derived from soils and soil particles that get um, 
suspended into the atmosphere and these are attached to particles and they can be um, dispersed over great distances. So a, a microbe in one particular soil sample might then get be transported um, and you know th this can be quite problematic. Uh, we, we've all you know come through a global pandemic where we you know we've, we understand that bioaerosols so these are microbes that are attached to particles that are airborne um, can cause um, bad health effects and um, some work that we're interested in looking at is is in particular compost sites and so the when you have a compost site you've got organic material that's being broken down by the microbes and as part of the process the composting facilities will will turn the 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 site the the windrows as they're called the 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 like rows of um, the the decomposing waste, and as these get turned, um, particles get released into the atmosphere, um, which include pathogens. So these can be human pathogens, plant pathogens, and animal pathogens, and these can then get transported. Um, and attached to those particles can be pollutants as well. So you, again, you, the hydrocarbons and metals can can move around. And um, one of the difficulties with trying to analyse these um, bioaerosols is that they're very complex. The microbial communities are very complex. And um, the, whilst there's a lot of um, devices available to sample bioaerosols there's no kind of universal sampler and there's no kind of agreed method um by by the community so you've got, somehow you've got to capture them out of the air in the in a way that's reliable a absolutely and and then you've got to analyze them as well and so all the the, uh, the methods to analyze them can be different so one area that we're looking at is trying to create some standards of collecting the air samples and doing the analysis that can be used worldwide and uh, and so then one study can be compared with another study and this is really to help the regulators so um, play, people like the Environment Agency and um, Public Health England those sorts of organisations that we can help them to try and set uh, meaningful guidelines and recommendations that um, is context dependent so what guidelines you set for example for a compost facility might be different for a school or um, a, a sewage treatment works so it's, it's thinking about the levels of these aerosols uh, and um, what are the key um, microbes that could be potentially harmful to, to human health. But is there a way of then intervening to do something about that? Because that's the kind of follow-up question. Once we know, I mean, what you're describing is is these transfers across environments that that we don't see, mm -hmm. public doesn't see, but are happening, um, and, so, and many of those are just natural processes, as you mm -hmm. as you've described. But they could bring additional threats if we have concentrations of of pollutants like the tar sands mm -hmm. or or natural environments that have kind of high high concentrations for for particular reasons uh, absolutely so so one of the keys is, is knowing which microbes to target and and where to place your sampler so um, in, a, in a composting facility, for example, uh, you, you would likely get a higher concentration downwind, but there's reports of 
pathogens and harmful microbes upwind of a facility. So it, it's really just um, taking lots of samples, looking at the wind conditions and, and, and that kind of thing, and and um, setting meaningful targets that, that have a... Um, you know, a, a, an impact on human health, because one one of the one of the challenges really is is looking at dose response relationships. So, um, I might get a dose of a of a microbial pathogen, but that might only cause a, a mild symptoms for me, whereas somebody else it might be more severe because they might have underlying health conditions. And so, it's just trying to you know, set set those limits. Limits. We can hear echoes of that in the COVID, in our understanding of the last couple, two or three years Absolutely. now of, of what's happened globally. I was curious to know, Corinne, do the composting companies have barriers? I'm thinking trees here um, that they plant nearby or downwind of the composting facilities to kind of trap particles and, and pathogens? Or is that too, are they too low? Uh, I mean that that's that's a great idea, and and there's been research um, done around schools actually, where they've shown hedges, planting hedges around where cars are being parked, um, helps to reduce the uh, air pollutants. So yes, so some of the composting facilities that we sampled did have trees around. I don't know whether that was the the company themselves that were planting them or whether they were just naturally there. But yes, it it, it is a good idea that the trees would capture some of these particles. Um, And and also um, they can help reduce noise and obviously that that kind of stuff as well. So in in the the, the microbes are travelling into the air in some way, they also can be kind of sites for precipitation for rainfall mm-hmm. have we kind of understand that better that the, the kind of plants in particular environments contribute to uh, atmospheric conditions which can lead to more rainfall or if you take away the plants less concerns about that particularly with respect to the to to amazon or to kind of other other areas that in the world where there's been loss of vegetation is what what about these interactions then of of microbes from kind of natural environments into the atmosphere and our understanding of that. I mean, I just used that one example of, of, of rainfall forming, but there's a lot more going mm-hmm. on, as you were saying, with pollution as well. Mm-hmm. well You've done some stuff well, on the leaves, I, I, haven't I, I, you? Just, I think it's too isoprene. It does, it does. Yay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I better enunciate this carefully. Isoprene, I guess, because people always think I'm saying ice cream. So isoprene <laughs> is, again, a hydrocarbon. But it's uh, unusual in, in that it has uh, bonds that means that it's very reactive. Um, and so it's not an example of a microbe going off into the atmosphere. It's, it's a gas that's produced uh, from trees. And, and we've worked specifically on production by algae in the ocean. And uh, this um, gas has many effects. It can be a good guy in the sense that it, it, it does what you say. It, it allows uh, uh, clouds to condense and, and that uh, reflects the sun back uh, and leads to global cooling. But on the other hand, uh, because it's so reactive, it can react with those molecules that would otherwise be reacting with gases, greenhouse gases like methane, and that leads to global warming. So its overall effect is, is highly complex and uh, atmospheric scientists argue about this all the time. Uh, but what we're working on is how microbes 
reduce the amount of isoprene going into the atmosphere, how much they do this, both in the ocean, that's where we started our work, and on the coast, but more recently on leaf surfaces where most of the isoprene is being produced. Right, so if you take a forest, a typical British forest, it would have higher levels of isoprene and other terpenes within it? It, it would. Because, uh, of the, because of the plants themselves. Oh, the plants yeah. are, are the, by far and away the main producers, and there's as much isoprene produced into the atmosphere as there is methane. Um, and it's especially uh, common where it's warm, so in the tropics. Um, the leaves need to be present, so it's uh, in, in, in uh, the summer for deciduous forests. Uh, and, and the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia are so named because of the blue haze, which is the reaction of isoprene in the atmosphere. Uh, so, yes, it's a very, very abundantly produced hydrocarbon. Very interesting. And and the links to that, to to low levels of, of ozone, quite often you get that kind of blue colour at the seaside, for example. Are there, are there links to, or is that just another example of a visual effect of, of chemicals in the atmosphere above an environment? I, I don't know. That's interesting. I don't know specifically whether that reaction is with, with uh, uh, isoprene, but certainly in built-up areas where you have trees, where you have air that produce isoprene. Not all trees produce isoprene, most do. Um, and that isoprene reacts with um, nitrous oxides that may be produced by car fumes, for example. That can lead to low-level ozone, and that can cause all sorts of uh, damage, health to humans, animals, and crops, for example. So that's bad ozone, low level, yes. right, as, as yes. opposed to the good stuff higher up, which yes, is exactly. stratospheric and protective. Exactly. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, what 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 about some further applications of this knowledge of, of of microbes in soils, in in the air, in the seas, in deep areas? Some some specific examples of of how our understanding may lead to kind of um, new targets of improvement. And if we went back to the sea, perhaps I'd give one steer. We may not have any answers yet, but we may be targeting. I'm thinking of plastics in seas. So if you if you took the kind of the the gyres in the oceans or one that people will have heard of the sargasso sea is a gyre of 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 moving um uh, water circling water with large amounts of of algae and um, sargassum within it but lots of plastic now um, absolutely uh, as yeah. as indeed the case almost anywhere in the world what what are we learning about how how microbes are interacting with that and then what we might be able to do to intervene to make it happen and, and more this, quickly or better in a sense yeah th- th- this is an area that we're working on at the moment so when you, when you think about plastics in the ocean you think about the higher organisms and, and the effects on them but you don't really think about the effects on the small organisms like the microbes and we're looking to see if we can use microbes to remove some of the the polymers so some of the compounds within plastics to help degrade the plastics quicker and we, we did some work recently um, using um, samples from locally from, from the coal estuary actually and we showed that the microbes in this coal estuary sediments could remove some of the microplastics so that was quite interesting and that could be one possible solution to the microplastic pollution um, moving forward. So if you were thinking very very long term the planet would be able to deal with the pollution over millions of years because there are mechanisms that exist and one would expect evolution to play a role in removing 
problematic compounds. But for our concerns today of, of seeing the large amounts of plastic, plus all of that that we can't see, mm-hmm. does this then open up opportunities for thinking what we could we could take some of those naturally occurring microbes just down the road in the in the muds of the estuary and use them in some sort of practical way? Or is that kind yeah. of speculating no, a little no, bit? No, people are looking into this, um, <clears throat> but both in terms of whole microbes and, and enzymes from microbes as, as a means of treatment. Clearly, the, the best way is to reduce production and... and, and uh, um, not produce it in the first place. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, but 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 given that we have a, 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 this this legacy and, and we'll continue to have it, uh, this is certainly one route to look into. But also to understand how rapidly it occurs in the natural environment and kind of brings us back to hydrocarbons again. That there's many microbes that that, that can degrade different types of plastics generally very slowly, <laughs> and some plastics are, are, are more difficult to degrade than others. But there's one. Um, Hydrocarbon degrading microbe, let's call him Alca, Alcanivorax, uh, which was isolated from the North Sea. And um, this microbe, can uh, it's often found in the so-called plastisphere, which is the name that people have coined for, for the microbial film growing on plastics. Uh, and it can also degrade things like PET, one of the main uh, 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 plastics. Again, slowly, um, but, but um, over hundreds of years, uh, if we stop producing plastics, then perhaps they'll disappear from the ocean unless they're buried in an anoxic zone, for example, where perhaps they're not doing much harm anyway. So could we intervene to make that happen more quickly? So that we, I'm thinking of the, and it's quite a big jump between the, the, the visual image of plastics on all, almost every shore. I mean, I've seen them in the Arctic. You will have seen them in all sorts of places. You look, they're there. But that's the big stuff. But it's the tiny breakdown products that need to be dealt with as well that Mm. are being ingested by all sorts of smaller organisms that are eaten by larger ones and so forth. Um, Is is there a practical way that we can imagine making that happen? Noting, of course, that there are always these dangers that exist with deliberate releases or escapes of organisms as soon as there's a, 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 you know, as it were, a miracle organism might be found or posited then it's probably going to have a side effect as well so, uh, yeah <laughs> you know, i might eat the wrong things <laughs> i think what we generally find um is that the microbes find their own way they're the ones that that um are adapted to um, degrade pollutants including uh, plastic components and given the vast size of the ocean i imagine somehow intervening in at that level would be would be tricky uh, for the reasons that you said. Um, but at a local level, um, or where plastics recovered and, and, and looking at the potential to convert those plastics into something useful, I think there's a, a lot of scope there. Mm. Okay, so you can, you can imagine, one can imagine um, having collected the problematic plastic in particular places, we could find ways of intervening to break it down more rapidly or use it positively rather than just think of it as a, purely as a waste that needs to be buried. Yeah, we should always be thinking of the circular economy and and, and creating something useful from that Mm. rather than just uh, CO2. What what, what kind of happens as we we think ahead a little bit about the big changes that we might be seeing? I've got one example in mind, which is that quite quickly we're moving towards electric vehicles. Um, 
we, we you know it will be um, all new electric ve- all new vehicles in the UK by 2030 I think are going to have to be electric but there'll be some carry on of petrol and diesel afterwards and the main source of of um, nitrogen pollution in the atmosphere comes from vehicles so as we switch towards electric vehicles there'll be a big air pollution benefit which is going to kind of change a lot of these these new mechanisms that have come around do is is that is that all upside and good stuff or can you imagine kind of surprising changes that might come um as a result of doing the good thing to get rid of that pollution um i mean i'm thinking for example um the amount that uh, quite a lot of that nitrogen comes back down onto land which provides a free source of fertilizer for farmers that they may not know is happening so electric vehicles are going to take that away so they're going to change quite a lot of these cycles of of nutrients that you've been describing that are mediated by microbes and certain examples i i i, I think i think that that effect is is likely minimal compared with the the benefits there um the downsides will be presumably mining to to get the uh, the lithium and, and nickel and whatever metals are needed uh, uh, in, in in the batteries of the future, um, and and what effects that will have, and, and whether we've got enough <laughs> on the, so back on the to your, earth. So that comes back to your question: Then, will we need to understand how we break down those when those become waste products? And, we're going to need to understand a new challenge which is dealing with those and recycling them importantly recovering them um you know people are even looking at methods to recover gold from sewage so so there's a lot of scope to recover metals from all sorts of environments so let, let, let's let's finish by kind of taking us forward um some years into the future so if you were looking to the future two five ten years that kind of i don't know maybe more than that what what are you thinking about um when considering uh, the world of microbes, what kind of predictions do you see uh, that are interesting, exciting, surprising that that you know taking up your your either your kind of excitement or your um, concern when when thinking about this area because things have changed so rapidly the hypersaline environments twenty years ago did we we were just kind of yeah discovering just learning them. about them yeah. so if we were thinking ahead twenty years then we may have a well, we will have a whole lot more knowledge for sure, um, but I'm interested how that that may impact upon societies, ecosystems. I, I th- well, I think economies. For, I think for me, one of one of the emerging things is antimicrobial resistance mm. and antimicrobial resistance genes, and in particular, going back to the bioaerosols, because a lot of the research in that area has focused on soils and water. And the air has been completely ignored. And yet that's clearly important, as we've been discussing. And so I think for me that that would be an area that we need to really focus on. So just take us into that a bit. What what, what are the concerns or what are the opportunities in that? So obviously with the, the, the use of an, an, antimicrobials and an, uh, antibiotics, that's getting into the environment and the microbes there and, and naturally gaining resistance. Now, if you've got an organism that's a pathogen that causes harm to a human or a plant or an animal, then um, it's going to be very difficult to treat that particular condition. And um, so we know quite a lot in the soils, but if those if those pathogens are then getting dispersed and they're going into environments that perhaps wouldn't normally 
ha- have that organism and those genes that it's then going to spread into other organisms through um, gene transfer mechanisms and so you, you're going to see um, problems occurring that in areas that you you know you you, you wouldn't perhaps get so it'd be good to kind of know what those are and to intervene early uh, or uh, to uh, be changing our our behaviours or practices yeah, in health, for example. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and and sorry, I was just going to say, um, in particular, there's things like um, the uh, antifungals as well. So in, in agriculture, um, there's a lot of um, antifungals used to, you know, obviously to help crop yield and uh, reduce fungal pathogens. But they're also clearly important as well as the, as the bacteria. And so, again, that's another area that needs to be focused on. Yeah, the, the, the World Health Organization have, have highlighted that by 2050 we're going to be uh, suffering from all sorts of uh, infectious diseases that we can now treat with antibiotics, and this is going to, you know, lead to the mortality of many, many more millions of people. So this is really is a, a serious problem, and understanding <coughs> the spread of antibiotics is 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 uh, antibiotic resistance is clearly very, very important, and, and, and mitigating it but also finding new antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of our pharmaceuticals derive from microbes, some from plants, um, um, but, but most from microbes. And I think what we're going to see in the next five, ten years, and what we're starting to see, thankfully, is uh, a move towards uh, seeking more uh, antibiotics, whether that involves going to extreme environments to look for them and find new uh, microbes or new, new ways of... Um, Growing microbes together such that they produce more antibiotics or, or, or express those antibiotics where they've got the genes to do it, but they lie latent most of the time so we can find them. And then chemistry comes into play to improve them and modify them. Mm. And then have something that we could actually um, apply and use in, in, in the face of the, of the challenge of increased antibiotic resistance in the future. Yeah. yeah. Very good indeed. Thanks very much indeed. So Terry McGinnity, Corin Whippy, thank you very much indeed. We've been hearing about the importance of of uh, the roles of microbes in seas, in water, in soils, and in air, and their interactions, and their um, the opportunities that we have for intervening to improve lives in the future. So thank you very much indeed to both of you. Thank, thank you very much. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can.